You're trying to kill me. Marriage is death. Why now? Because two years ago, I slept eight hours. A year ago, it was 12. It's up to 15 now. Pretty soon, it's going to be 24. What are you trying to do? Scare me? I need a life. Get a job! I don't want a job. I want you. I'm taken by me! Get out of the house! Do something useful, goddammit! You wouldn't let me work when I wanted to. That was a year ago. Throw a tantrum every time you call and I'm not home. Look, sister, I'm out there in the jungle, eight hours a day! You wouldn't even let me canvas for Kennedy. You want a job? I got a job for you. Fix up this pigsty. You get a pretty goddamn good salary for testing out this bed all day. Hello, and welcome to the Lone Acting Nominees Podcast, a show where I'm joined each week by a guest to discuss a movie that only received a single Oscar nomination, that being for one of its performances. We'll talk about the performance in question, the movie as a whole, and its place in the Oscar race, among other things. My name is Gordon McNulty, and today I'm joined by Harrison Dunn, and we'll be talking about Anne Margaret's Oscar-nominated performance in the 1971 film Carnal Knowledge. Harrison, good to have you on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So when I reached, or you reached out to me saying you wanted to guest on the podcast, and I sent you the list and let you pick from whatever you wanted, and you gave me your list, but you seemed especially uh, excited to talk about Carnal Knowledge. And so talk about that a little. Talk about your uh, relationship with this film. I'm a bit of a Carnal Knowledge freak. Uh, <laughs> certified Carnal Knowledge aficionado here. Nice. I know, it's just awesome. Yeah, so that's I definitely, the reason I watched it the first time was just because it was on Amazon Prime and Mike Nichols and Jack Nicholson are kind of like a winning pair. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, th- yeah. That was why I was drawn to it, why I put that on the sort of short list of one that was most excited to talk about up front uh, was because I love those too. But really, everyone in this movie is great. Not to get too ahead of the conversation, but I, I really, I really enjoyed a lot of the work being done by everyone in this cast. It's a small cast, but they all bring the heat, definitely. Yeah, absolutely. This was, this was a, a real treat. Uh, Even Art Garfunkel, who is not an actor. Yeah, I don't <laughs> know of any other acting credits that he's had, to my knowledge. I'm sure he's probably been in other things, but this is his highest profile. Yeah, he was actually in, the year before, he was in Catch-22, Mike Nichols. Oh, I didn't know that. That would make sense, then, with the Mike Nichols connection. And Paul Simon was supposed to be in Catch-22, but I think he dropped out. Hmm. I don't know that much about the Catch-22 production. It was, I think it was a disaster. That's what I, that's, <laughs> that's the extent of what I know, is that it was a bit of a mess, which is maybe why uh, Mike Nichols would want to move to something much smaller scale, like Carnal Knowledge. Right. Uh, so let's, let's uh, so let me just give the rundown of what movie we're talking about. So we're talking about Carnal Knowledge from 1971, Directed by Mike Nichols, written by Jules Pfeiffer, uh, starring Jack Nicholson, Art Garfunkel, Candace Bergen, Anne Margaret, Rita Moreno shows up for a scene at the end, Cynthia O'Neill, Carol Kane, who doesn't have a single line of dialogue, but she's in there for a scene. It premiered June 30th, 1971 in the United States. So, uh, yeah, that's it. There's really not anyone else of note 
to the point that I don't know if there are any other speaking roles in the movie. And if there are, they're not anything or anyone of note. It's a really small cast. But as we said, it's just, they're super talented. Yeah. It's close-knit, but you don't need anyone else. So let's, let's get into the first segment of the show, where we talk about the nominated performance, which in this case is Anne-Margaret, who portrays Bobby in the film. So... Do you want to start us off? What are your What are your initial thoughts about her performance in this movie? I think I actually wrote down some people who are also vying for Bobby. Yeah, I I read that list, but I didn't make note of who they were. But there were some interesting names on there. I remember. See that. who was it? I know Karen Black wanted it. Yes, yes, but uh, I think that, I do remember. Um, wherever I read that, it said something that she and Nichols came to mutual agreement that her, uh, her body wasn't to the standards. She wasn't yeah. like, because Jack Nicholson's character, the, the movie opens over the opening credits. It's a conversation between his character, Jonathan and Art Garfunkel's character, Sandy talking about what they want in their ideal woman. We don't see them. It's just voiceover dialogue. And they're talking about, Oh, do I, uh, do I want a smart woman? Do I want a loyal woman? Do I want, a funny woman and Jack Nicholson's character is very misogynistic and most of what he wants in a woman is a nice body and uh, libido and Anne Margaret obviously sex symbol of the time uh, is very body forward in this movie let's say that uh, she yeah. we see a lot of her by design like it's not that the movie is necessarily objectifying her but no. her relationship to Jonathan has to do a lot with her sexuality. So, so why, perhaps why Karen Black didn't necessarily fit the part in... Karen Black is really good, though, in Five Easy yeah. Pieces with Nicholson. Yes, she's great. The year prior. Yeah. Other people up for Bobby, Jane Fonda, Raquel Welch, Natalie Wood, and Diane Cannon. Yeah, so you can see with those names what sort of type of actress they were looking for. Like... The other uh, main woman in the first half of the movie is Candace Bergen, who she was also like very famously beautiful in this time, but she was more of like a... She was, she was more of an intellectual type. Yes, an intellectual type. Refined. And Anne Margaret was the female Elvis Presley. Yeah, I was about to say. Bye Bye Birdie, and she had been in a lot of like teen movies, essentially. So this was a big departure for her as far as the content of what yeah. you're doing in this movie. I actually read this whole article Roger Ebert uh, wrote about her, calling her the new Aunt Margaret. Huh. Just because it was such a departure, I suppose. Yeah. There was, um, I was reading Inside Oscar. They mention, oh, what's the pull quote? Because it's, Time Magazine said that it's like watching Minnie Mouse play Ophelia. <laughs> which I thought was... I That's mean, a good blur. Yeah, it's a good description of what you're going in expecting and what you come out getting. She's she's fantastic in this. I thought she did a really great job. And she's not really playing a prop to Jack Nicholson either, which I think yeah. that can happen because he's such an over-domineering presence. Not in a bad way. He just controls the stage. Yeah. Or yeah the before, before I'd seen this, because in my like prep work, all the image results that I could find of her in this movie... She's either topless or 
it's stills from the argument scene where she's uh, just wearing a bra. Yeah. Blanket. And I was worried that maybe this movie would, her, her role would just be like the bimbo, essentially. Yeah. Like, I, okay. I, was, I was very <laughs> worried that that's the type of role they would cast her in. And they essentially cast her as the exact opposite. Her first scene that she has with Nicholson over dinner, she's like going toe to toe with him with the dialogue. She's like almost stealing the scene away from him in terms of like who's quote unquote winning the scene. Um, but like she holds her own against Nicholson who in this time is like at the height of his angsty, loud, abrasive, you don't know when he's going to blow up on anyone around him persona. And she like takes that control from him and then over the course of their sort of relationship he wears her down and it's it's really fascinating to watch play out it's so yeah it's i think it's a perfect pairing and margaret versus jack nicholson uh, it's a, it's a, uh, and then tommy reunites them in that one scene between the two of them where oh yeah they plays, do show up back in tommy yeah he plays the doctor in one scene and they have a little song affair uh, which I thought was interesting. And we will get into uh, Anne margaret and Tommy and her second nomination for that. We'll get into that. But yeah, no, she's she's really great in this. Anne margaret was nominated. She was the only nomination for this film. Best yeah, Supporting Actress. So we're talking about it here. Yeah. yeah, but she won the Golden Globe. She did. We'll get into that as well. When we get into the awards, okay. I, have a whole, I have a lot to say about that. Right. One thing that this movie does really interestingly with her character is that her presence in the movie is bookended by the same scene of her ice skating. The first time we see her is from afar. Uh, Nicholson and Garfunkel are walking through some cityscape in the winter, and they're talking about the different women they've been with. And they see from afar, they see uh, Bobby ice skating in this like public ice rink, and we get a shot just of her skating around in this all-white getup and it's like almost angelic to watch her sort of glide around like that, dressed in all white on an all white background. And then she becomes like an actual character and we yeah. know more about her and we see her sort of fall apart in this relationship. And then she's gone for like the last little section of the movie. And then the ending of the movie is that same ice skating shot. And I think that, I think it, it's very telling of what the movie is trying to say that it ends with her and not Candace Bergen's character. Right. Having her be like the period at the end of this movie that she is essentially the most important woman in his life. Even as we yeah. see, there's plenty others that come yeah. in his. In I definitely see the film divided as in the three women, Jack Nicholson, uh, I don't know if the word is love, but it's definitely the three women he was most. Yes, the the one the ones that not to get into it too much because we'll get into it when we get into the rest of the movie. But the opening to this sort of third act is uh, Jonathan showing this slideshow of all the of the ballbusters in his life yeah. from it's the parade of the ballbusters. If I'm correct, <laughs> I, I believe so. Of starting from like his first childhood crush all the way up to the last woman he was with. And we see there's so many of them and he has something negative to say about them all. But I, you're right in that Candace Bergen, uh, Anne Margaret, and then Rita Moreno at the end. I, I, it does make sense that they are the most 
telling of who he is and what he wants in a relationship. It's interesting that uh, Anne Margaret is the first Mike Nichols leading lady cast uh, age appropriately. Oh, that's right. <laughs> because, well, of his four films up to that point, uh, Elizabeth Taylor was only, I believe, in her late 30s playing uh, Martha in Mary, Virginia, Martha. which is a much older character. Uh, Anne Bancroft was also, I believe, maybe 35 filming The Graduate, only sure. five years older than Dustin Hoffman. Um, and then I don't, there, might, there may be, uh, I don't know anything about Catch-22. I don't know if there is a leading lady in that. Not a lot of women in that film, I've got to say. Yeah. Makes sense. Ah. And then Anne Margaret is, I believe, 30 when she makes this, and she's playing 30. So she's playing 20. 29, yes. There's a. There's, a there's this great scene yes. where Jack Nicholson's counting up ages. <laughs> Trying to guess how old she is. Yeah. He starts with 19, and she says no, and 20. Oh. And, he skips and that scene is so great with the spinning restaurant in the background. Yes, yeah, that was. And you can. They're like head to head, you know, because one's trying to one off each other. Yeah. And and they're just giving it right back to each other. And you can tell they're like, there's chemistry there. There's right. definite chemistry between the two of them, which I think you need to sell their argument scene as well as you do. You need to have that chemistry early on. That argument scene is really the cherry on top, I think, of her I, performance. It, That's basically the last thing she does in the film. Yes. I like you watch up until, up until right before that, and you can see why she gets the nomination. You can see, okay, this is a really good performance, completely against type. And then that bombshell of a scene. That, like, it's, it is very intense from both of them. They're both giving it as much as they are getting it. I know. And, <laughs> so like, good. The fact that that's the last we see of her, and beyond that, there's not really a hook scene like that. That's the last real hook scene to the movie. And, like, it's exactly why she got the nomination, because that sticks with you more than anything in this movie, that, that one scene. That's the centerpiece of the film. I think everything else is orbiting around it. You know, you're building up. Absolutely. The end's really good, too, but it's, it's, it's really not good. as pop. Yeah, no, it, you, you can't look away. And apparently they were going to cut it, because Nichols was afraid it, the audience wouldn't yeah, keep Jonathan after seeing that. It's the thesis of the movie, essentially. Is yeah. this, there's a line that I wrote down that I literally wrote is the thesis of his character. Uh, where So the whole impetus for this argument is they're sort of frustrated with each other. It's been building up over years. She quit her job and now she stays at home all day and doesn't do anything and she's completely bored and miserable and she wants to do anything. She wants to be able to do anything. And they're fighting and she's asking him to marry her. Uh, and she keeps asking throughout. You, as They get angrier and angrier and louder and louder and she keeps asking him if he'll just marry her. And the thing he says that I wrote down, um, he says, I'd almost marry you if you left me. Like... So true. <laughs> yeah, but he... The other thing I wrote down is that it's very interesting... Like, the reason you cast an Anne Margaret in this role is to show that Jack Nicholson's character, who's so obsessed with sex, he's so, like, that's what he wants in a relationship, that he gets with this icon and lives with her, has her, like, doting on him 
completely loyal to him, does nothing else with her life but be there in service of him, and he still gets bored with her. And he still envies uh, Art Garfunkel's wife who takes a bit more control in the bedroom. He just... They're both... I think Jack Nicholson is looking at sex with only eroticism and not intimacy. And Art Garfunkel, you know, he's the opposite of that. Yeah, yeah. Like, I think that's really good casting. It's interesting that it's two musicians uh, in the supporting cast with Garfunkel and and Margaret. Um, Oh, right. (laughs) I think that adds to what you expect and what you don't expect from their performances in very interesting ways. But yeah, that you cast one of the more sexless um, musicians of the time to play this sort of awkward, bumbling, nice guy, but still like in over his head in a lot of ways with his relationships. A guy who should stop listening to Jack Nicholson, I think. That's probably, that could describe most non-Jack Nicholson characters in most Jack Nicholson movies. They should (laughs) probably stop listening to Jack Nicholson. He's crazy. Another thing he says in that Jack Nicholson in that fight scene, I think Anne Margaret says, I want you. And then Jack Nicholson says, says, I'm taken by me. I think that's good. Because he's a raging narcissist. He's a complete narcissist. (laughs) And that's what's so heartbreaking about the relationship is that he's so invested in himself and she's also so invested in him. Like, that's why it's, it's so effective that the argument isn't that she's trying to leave him. She can't take it anymore. It's that she can't take it anymore and she wants to marry him to try to change that. She, she wants to be with him more. And it's just so, so heartbreaking to watch her fall apart like that and realize that he's never going to be what she wants him to be in their relationship. Which I think... Another line that I wrote down and another moment of acting that I thought really sort of like foreshadowed this like emotional vulnerability we get from her in this argument. There's a scene after they've had sex and he's in the shower and he's, I think he's whistling or something. And the shot just holds on Anne Margaret sitting against the wall. And she just has this look of like, there's something I want to say. And I know that whatever I, once I say it, I can't take it back. And it's going to change this dynamic forever. But I, I really want to say it. And we hold on that for a while and you don't really know what she's going to say. And you think it might be like, oh, I think we should see other people or something like that. It's that kind of look. But then she asks to move in with him. And like that she, she would treat moving in with him with the same sort of like cautious, uh, treatment of breaking up. I think that that's really telling of what they are with each other. You know, it's still a heavy subject for her, even though it's just moving in. Yeah. And the fact that that scene has the little button on the end where like she asks and he's sort of like taken aback by it and they have a back and forth about what that means for them. And she ends it with like, I'm not, I'm not asking you to marry me. I'm just asking to move in. Um, yeah. And then obviously later on, she does ask him to marry her, and it does not have the intended outcome. May I ask you a question? Yes. Do you feel cheated out of this film that we never get to see Jack Nicholson's penis? <laughs> <Did> we see it. 
Because and Margaret's naked. I mean, like a few times. Oh yeah. And we we get hints. <laughs> you get you get hints of of body. I think. I mean, this is the most time I've ever spent with Jack Nicholson in the shower. Oh which yeah, is there's like constantly six shower scenes with him. It's a uh, it's a sight to behold. The very hairy man. True. Yeah. Um. Yeah. No. Uh. It's interesting. <laughs> It is interesting that you bring that up. And I, I want to talk later about 1971 specifically and sex in movies and sex in movies at the Oscars, because I have a lot to say about that. But the way this movie treats sex and physicality, uh, between first between the two male leads and Candace Bergen, and then later with uh, Nicholson and Aunt Margaret, and what it shows and what it doesn't show in those moments of intimacy, I think that's a really, it has a, a lot to do with what this movie is saying about sex and what it's saying about sex in relation to uh, intimacy. And w- what we see, what, like, like you said, we don't really see, obviously we don't see uh, full frontal from anyone. We don't see Big Steve, as he called it, during production. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think the most nudity we actually see there's a few shots of Anne margaret from behind and then there's a few like very brief side shots of her uh bare chest but yeah. you definitely leave uh the experience thinking that you've seen more than you've actually seen because it's so prevalent when it is there and so like it hints at it so much well there's this classic seinfeld bit where uh, Jerry and George are arguing about whether Candace Bergen is nude in this film. Yeah. And she's so kind of... No, she's not. <laughs> uh, so we heard it here first. She's not. She's <laughs> not. Uh, sorry to spoil that Seinfeld episode. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, I had some more written down about... Oh, the, yes. This was a line that I wrote down from Anne Margaret during that argument that, like, was so telling and just so heartbreaking she's uh crying to him and she she goes the reason i sleep all day is because i can't stand my life and he says what life and she says sleeping all day and then she like realizes what she said and just crumples it's it is it's it's a very a very well written screenplay and we'll get into that when we get into the other parts of the movie but yeah no she's she does a really good job with that scene. It's so good. Cause you know, she's, she's definitely seen worse than Jack Nicholson. That's what the oh, yeah. Jack like, Nicholson's trying to push her away and all this stuff, you know, cause he just can't have, I guess he just can't have that submissive a woman or any woman is really cause he's bullying her and, you know, just mocking her and all this. And she's just taking it because she's just so infatuated with him. She's so taken by him from the very beginning. Like you can see in that first dinner scene where uh, he guesses her age and he says, uh, he asks if she cooks and she says she can cook spaghetti. And he says, he can I can cook spaghetti. spaghetti. <laughs> Good, then you'll do the cooking. I, I, I like that bit. But like even from then you can tell she is just like all in for this guy. Yeah, she's, she's like, he's funny, he's charming, because that's what Jack Nicholson is, especially in this time. He's funny and charming, and when you get to know him, you realize, oh, this is a horrible man. 
Jack Nicholson is our greatest shit heel in oh, all of he's, all he's, of film. One of my favorite actors of all time. I, I thought he did a really great job in this for a performance no one ever really talks about for him. I know. No one talks about this film. Sad to say. Yeah, like no one talks about it when it comes to Jack. No one talks about it when it comes to Mike Nichols. No one talks about it when it comes to like the coming of age sex forward movies of this time. It's- and my take is this might be better than The Graduate, at least on its take on sex in the, you know, the 20th. Yeah, it has, 20th it has a more, it definitely deals more directly with sex than The Graduate does. The Graduate has a lot more themes that it's trying to tackle. You're and right. I just rewatched it uh, the other day for this and I, ha- I have a lot to say about it because my opinion of that movie changed a lot because I hadn't seen it in a long time I kind of think Dustin Hoffman is bad in it you think he's a well that's like his big star making vehicle yeah I think he's just not fit for the role like I don't he said that too he was like I think I think you want like Robert Redford for this film oh. That's a fantastic Dustin Hoffman impression. Wow. Thanks. I do him occasionally. <laughs> that was, like I had him here in the room. Um, but no, I was, <laughs> uh, no, I was talking. The Redford thing is funny. Uh, just to go off on a tangent, this is one of my favorite behind-the-scenes stories for any movie. Uh, Redford wanted the role, and Hoffman was like, no, you're not good for it. You, you don't fit it. And Redford was like, no, what are you talking about? I'd, I'd love this. And Hoffman goes, have you ever struck out with a girl? And Redford didn't know what he meant. <laughs> he, he was like, what, what are you talking about? What do you, what do you mean? Like, out, is that a baseball metaphor? I don't understand. Yeah. <laughs> like, he's so clueless about that. And like, yeah, he's, he's, he'd be a... He's Robert Redford. <laughs> yeah, Robert Redford in 1967. Oh. That, no, uh, like that's... He would not fit in as like the kind of 20 year old loser but also dustin hoffman doesn't fit in as the guy that women are fighting over he's i agree and not i'm not just talking about his his looks i'm like he he just exudes a a, a, i don't know i just he doesn't have the right vibe for that role uh having watched it again he makes benjamin braddock his own though i've got to say yeah no it's a in a different movie, I think that performance works. But for what that movie is asking of that character, I think maybe it doesn't work. And I love everyone else in that movie. I think Anne Bancroft is great. Catherine Ross is great. Murray Hamilton is really good as uh, Mr. Robinson. Oh, my. He's hilarious. When he's waiting for him, he's like, <laughs> I can see, you know, I've been in here for a very long time. Yeah, he's sitting there with a the cigar. Yeah. I always yeah. find myself getting bored at a point in The Graduate. Yeah. I loved the first half, and I loved, like, the, the last bit. Yeah. But then, you know, he's, like, asking Catherine Ross to marry him. Yeah. And it's like, Dustin Hoffman, why did you follow this girl to uh, yeah. <laughs> her it's college? Not the first movie I've talked about on this podcast where Dustin Hoffman bothers a girl in a library to try to get her to go out with him. Because I've also talked about Marathon Man. Oh, I've got to watch that one. Yeah. Uh, Big Dustin Hoffman blind spot. I think generally Mike Nichols is a really good actor's director. I love him. Yeah. And it makes, it makes complete sense because he has such an extensive background in theater, but yeah, no, he's, he consistently pulls some of my favorite performances, especially from actors that I wouldn't necessarily expect to be giving such 
layered performances. Like Art Garfunkel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, Art Garfunkel is great in this. He's so funny. That first scene at the college mixer, when Jack Nicholson's like, <laughs> I give you to him. I give you to her. I don't know what he says. Yeah, but then he, he goes, walks over to her and pretends to look out the window. And then he walks back so dejected. He says, you struck out, kid. <laughs> yeah, that's not a bad Nicholson either. Um, yeah, anything else you want to talk about, about Anne-Margaret's performance before we move on to the rest of the movie? I know we've been sort of jumping back and forth, but anything else on Anne-Margaret specifically? Oh, Ellen Burstyn also auditioned. Oh, yeah. Uh, that that's interesting because I don't, I'll, I'll get into Ellen Burstyn later on when we talk about this category at the Oscars, but I, I have a lot to say about her in the last picture show specifically. Oh yeah. Uh, we should probably mention um, after the argument scene, Art Garfunkel and his wife show up because they're supposed to be getting ready for a party. And I don't know if they're married. I think Cynthia O'Neill is his mistress. Oh, the relationship's a little muddled, but I think... Yeah. It, it's something like that. It's, I mean, relationships in this movie are all muddled. No one is ever really committed to anyone, and that's the point. That's the point of the movie. Sure. But they show up, and Nicholson and Garfunkel have a back and forth about how they both are jealous of what the other guy has uh, as far as a relationship dynamic. And they're like, hey, you, you want to you wanna, you wanna swap? You want to trade? Um, and sends Garfunkel into the bedroom and he starts dancing with uh, Cynthia O'Neill and she essentially is like, I've been waiting for you to do this. I've been waiting for you to hit on me. Come over whenever you want. But if Garfunkel puts a hand on her, tell him not to come home. And then she leaves and Nicholson goes back into the bedroom and Bobby has overdosed. That's true. And you see her taking the pills during the fight scene. She takes you don't a put few it in doses in between each shot. Yeah, uh, but like, but that's the end of her character, and she's not dead. We we get confirmation. No. They actually get married after. Yeah. Yeah, because the parade of the ballbusters, we the find out, and they had kids too, I believe. Yes, and then they got divorced, and there's plenty more ballbusters after that. Sure, um, but Anne Margaret's queen of the ballbusters, as a title given to her by Nicholson. Yes character so yeah let's let's get into the rest of the movie let's really talk about everything else and there's a lot to talk about some people you can tell about right away most girls i talk to it's like we're spies from foreign countries and we're speaking in code everything means something else like i say would you like to take a walk and it means something else and she says i can i've got a french test tomorrow and it means something else and you say, I'll come over and help you study, and it means something else. You're very sharp. I like that. And that means something else. <laughs> You're too sharp. Does that bother you? It interests me. Is that more code? We'd be good together. I'm dating your best friend. He won't mind. How do you know? I won't tell him. What if I mind? Let's talk about carnal knowledge. <laughs> That's what it means. It means fucking. Uh, and this movie sure does have a whole lot of fucking. It's uh, true. Some of it is outside. Yes, there's a surprising amount of outside sex. Yeah, it's a little... I was taken back. Third watch. I was like, a lot of this intimate stuff's happening just by a tree. <laughs> yeah. 
the first uh, the time the first time that Nicholson and Candace Bergen hook up, we should we should sort of explain because we're Let's talking take about it from the beginning, and we're talking about Garfunkel and Bergen. So, uh, yeah, do you want to sort of describe the the sort of arc of this first act uh, while they're at college? Which, by the way, okay. Jack Nicholson playing a college student is serious because <laughs> he looks forty. Garfunkel pulls it off, though. Oh, yeah. He, he's got this banality to his face. He's got a baby face, and he's got yeah. this sort of, like, curly hair. It's it's very anachronistic for 1948 for him to have that yeah. like, afro, but it's our Garfunkel. You're not going to make him get a crew cut for it. All right. So the, the movie starts. You get the credits. They talk about Garfunkel specifically asks, is it better to be loved or to love? Anyway, so that's the first question of the film. And then, bang, cut to the college mixer. Candace Bergen walks by. Jack Nicholson says, Your I give it to her. I give you to her. Art Garfunkel makes his move on Candace Bergen. They start talking. You know, they talk about, they hate college mixers because everyone's an act. And then Candace Bergen says, You know, I don't agree with that. I think you think you're doing an act, but then that act is really you. Anyway, blah, blah, blah. Art Garfunkel starts dating Candace and then Jack Nicholson starts getting like, you know, he's giving him all the advice. He's saying, put your hand on her tit and what all. <laughs> yeah. And then when he does, when they do get intimate together, Nicholson, is, he gets jealous. Cause he, like it, he says something to, to the effect of like, maybe I'm misremembering, but I feel like it's something to the effect of how come this dweeb gets the girl first and I'm left alone as the virgin of the group. Something to that, like that's not a direct line, but that you no. get that vibe from him that he uh, he wants in on that action, and so he gets in on that action. Literally, he starts <laughs> uh, dating Candace Bergen behind uh, Sandy's back. Yeah, important note: Art Garfunkel and Jack Nicholson are both virgins at the beginning of this movie. <laughs> yes, very important. It's telegraphed instantly because you know you don't watch a Jack Nicholson movie thinking, "Oh, this guy, virgin." <laughs> Yeah, although he is playing, again, hilariously, a college freshman. A, co- a Jewish college freshman. Yeah, that was, that was something that I read. Like, I don't rem- know if that ever is mentioned in the movie. I just know that in the script, which was written to be a play. For yes, by Jules Pfeiffer. And he brought it to Nichols, and Nichols said, I think I it was a movie. movie. Yeah, I see it as a movie. That's the line. Um, but yeah, I don't know if that is ever... Uh, mentioned outside of the script. I don't know if that's ever brought up in the movie that uh, Jonathan is supposed to be Jewish. I don't think it is. I feel like that's something I would have noticed. Uh, You skipped over a very important part in the opening credits, which is that he's credited as Arthur Garfunkel. (laughs) Well, I guess that's his name. (laughs) It is, but it's just weird to see him credited as Arthur Garfunkel. Actor Arthur Garfunkel. Musician Art Garfunkel. Yes. But yeah, no, so Nicholson and Candace Bergen start seeing each other. They sleep together before she sleeps with uh, Garfunkel. Sure. Which is very uh, important to their dynamic. Because then when she does sleep with him, Nicholson takes it as like a personal offense, even though he's the one screwing around with his best friend's girl behind his back. And Garfunkel is telling Jack everything about this relationship. Yeah. He's coming back home, coming back to their their dual dorm room where they smoke yeah. cigarettes together. A very small dorm room. 
Yeah. Essentially and just two beds and a table and that's it. Tiny. And, and two dudes. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so they the the relation both relationships with her get very serious and they sort of struggle uh with who essentially gets her. And Garfunkel doesn't know any of this. He has no idea, even until the end, that this ever happened. Bad friend. Nicholson was a bad friend for that one. Yeah. Uh, Nicholson does tell Garfunkel he got laid, but he comes up with this great fake name, Myrtle. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And so they, Garfunkel said something like, we should go on a double date. Uh, And there's a lot of tensions between Nicholson and Bergen because he wants her to break it off with Garfunkel and tell him so that they can be uh, together directly. And she, excuse me, she can't bring herself to do it. He can't bring, bring himself to do it because it's some, they're on the phone talking about it. He threatened to tell her, to tell Garfunkel about her. And she asks if he did. And he said, no, because I know he would go to you to ask about it. You'd confirm everything. And then you'd sleep with him. And she goes, go to bed with him. Yeah, yeah, I would. <laughs> it's very much college relationship drama. Candace Bergen's really good in this movie, too. Great. Like, the whole first act where she's essentially second lead to Nicholson, I was blown away by her. And I think part of why uh, she never really picked up the traction, the awards traction that Anne Margaret got, is that once she's gone, she's completely gone. She doesn't come back. And she does marry Garfunkel, but she does not appear again. Yeah, she doesn't appear in the rest of the movie. And then the rest of the movie, or a majority of the rest of the movie, is Anne Margaret. And she sort of steals away any of the attention that, like any memories you would have had of Candace Bergen are out the window when you get what Anne Margaret is doing. They're painted over in the new coat of Anne Margaret. Yeah. But she does wear a nice coat throughout the film. Yes. A nice at, fur. At their dinner, it's a very, a very nice. And in the taxi cab. Anyway, uh, there's another thing I was going to say about those early scenes. Oh, yeah. Art Garfunkel is sensitive, and he says at some point that Candace Bergen tells him thoughts he never had. And never later on, Jack Nicholson is, why don't you ever tell me thoughts I never had? Tell me my thoughts. Yeah. And, like, <laughs> it's perfect that, like, Nicholson's a fucking idiot. And he, like, he hears Garfunkel say that, and he's not realizing, oh, Art Garfunkel is an idiot, and she's just smart. Nicholson is like, oh, she can actually do that. Tell me my thoughts, too. He's, he really Tell is. Tell me my thoughts. <laughs> yeah, it's... it's so it's, funny. Yeah, it's a really funny screenplay. For, for as dark as it gets in some points, and as, like, heavy as it gets, it's really funny. Yeah, and then there's one point where Jack Nicholson says, I read more books than you. And then he names some random book. He says, that's a bestseller, and I read it. Yeah, uh, I wrote something down about the book, uh, about the book scene where he says, Garfunkel says that she's very well read. And Nicholson says, you don't read. And he says, I'm going to. I'm going to read The Fountainhead. It's her favorite, which is hilarious that her favorite book is The Fountainhead. And in the next uh, book, he says that he's going to read after that, is Jean-Christophe, which is a series of books and by an author who was like friends with Stalin and Mao, which it is like the, it's such a throwaway line. And like, I had to look it up to get the joke of it, but that like these people are just 
idiots in college with no real outlook on the world that her two favorite books or the two books that he's reading for her are by Ayn Rand, who's like the right-wing author of the time, and then a series of books by like an outspoken communist. I thought that was a really, really funny little tiny line in there. Yeah, I didn't even catch that. I, I, really funny. <laughs> I had to look it up because I, I wrote down the thing about the fountainhead. And then when he says the other book after that, I, I was like, that has to be something. There has to be a reason that's the other book being juxtaposed against the fountainhead. And it's like, I'd never heard of Jean-Christophe, but it, it's, it's really telling about her character. There's a point later on where she's in the car with Nicholson. She says something like, my family are Republicans, but I think I might be a communist. Which again, the political wishy-washiness of college students in the 1940s and college students now, that spoke true of like, I'm figuring out what I believe in politically now that I'm out in the world, in the world trying to be like an adult. But that just means I'm taking in everything from fascism to communism. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of Jack Nicholson. Yes. Upon getting laid, he jumps into a pool fully clothed and our Garfunkel calls him a bullshit artist which is one of the great phrases repeated throughout this film they they call each other bullshit artist or even just artist like that's the name that's how they refer to each other is artist or bullshit artist I think that that's a really good little bit of like it really sells the friendship between them it sells these two have probably been friends for a long time I was thinking do you think that over like that voiceover at the beginning of the film, I was thinking, I, I was wondering how young do you think they are, like supposed to be in the play? I was thinking maybe that's before they even get to college. It is because there's a line that Garfunkel has. He says, I feel like losing my virginity is like going to college. I'm being pressured into it. Like mm. he hasn't done either of them yet and he doesn't really know if he's ready, but the world around him is telling him that he has to be ready for it. So he's sort of, being thrust into these worlds of maturity that he's not necessarily ready for. So true. Yeah. And when Art Garfunkel like, is about to have sex with Candace Bergen, he pulls out a condom. And that was the first condom ever put on the screen. Yeah, on any screen, ever. And yeah. I thought that was really interesting. Um, speaking of... This film has a bunch of stuff like that. But... Yeah. Uh, it's also the first time the word cunt was ever said in dialogue. It had appeared in a You're movie right. before in writing, but it's the first time it's ever said out loud in, in a movie. And of course it's by Jack Nicholson. Yeah. Oh, less yelling at Anne Margaret. Of course, Jack Nicholson is the first man to ever say the word cunt on screen. That, that feels like, right. I'm pretty sure he says, you ball busting cat, what is it? Castrating son of a cunt bitch. Yeah, yeah, that's the, like, that's the just quote, like a string so. of like, it really sells home as immaturity of like, I'm just going to string together all these like cruel curse words I can think of. It's not going to make sense. I'm not, I'm just angry. I'm just angry at you. So I'm just going to say whatever comes out of my mouth. Speaking of the sex scenes and the first sex scene between Nicholson and Bergen, um, they're in like a pile of hay or something. Uh, and... Right. The shot is from above. He's on top of her. And he's in like this big coat. So you don't see anything of him other than him just sort of like 
humping away at her. And you see like the top of her face over his shoulder. And she like, it's a really, it's kind of a funny scene of like, she looks confused and aroused and like guilty all like she, it's going back and forth between all these faces and then he rolls off her and it's it's just a really interesting way to show by not showing like by not showing him you're showing what he's doing through her face which that actually brings up there's a there's a motif there's a visual motif that comes up a few times in this movie that I thought was really interesting. There's three times, at least, that I wrote down where there's action happening between a group and the film is focused in on someone that's not the action. Like, it's happening back and forth. There's the scene where the three of them and maybe some other friends are out drinking uh, and they're all, like, talking. They're talking about... Gladly the cross-eyed bear and other stuff like this. And you can tell Nicholson's on one side, Garfunkel's on the other side, but all you see is a close-up on her, mostly not talking, mostly looking back and forth between them, laughing. laughing. Oh, she's, she's cracking up at all this. Um, and it, it, it's really interesting. And then the other ones I wrote, so after Nicholson and Bergen have their fight uh, over the phone, we see it's a shot of him. It's a close-up of Nicholson while she and Garfunkel are packing for a trip they're going on. And we, we know that they're, going, they're back and forth off-screen talking about what to pack for the trip. And he's there watching, seeing, like, I'm never going to be actually in on this relationship. And then the third time it comes up, uh, it's a tennis game between Nicholson and Cindy, right? That's her name? Yeah. Uh, Garfunkel's new... Cynthia Neal's character, Cindy. They're playing tennis back and forth, uh, and Anne Margaret is sitting on a bench, like she's kind of seeing the signs that Nicholson is flirting with her, and all that. Essentially, just the movie does a lot with uh, showing a scene by not showing the action, by very deliberately not even hinting at the action, and just showing you the outside sort of uh, spectators on a given scene. I, I think it, it does that really interestingly, and it does that really interestingly with that sex scene, uh, that first scene. Oh, that yeah. Scene. Yeah. Mike Nichols, I'd say pretty good director. Yeah. We don't talk about him that much anymore. Like, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf is fantastic. That's one of your favorites, ain't it? One of my top ten. Yeah, it is a fantastically put-together movie. Everything about it works for me. Uh, and The Graduate, even though I, like I said, I'm not the biggest fan of Hoffman in it, I think Mike Nichols directs it really well. It's a really interesting director win. Uh, because oh, the, yeah. Yeah, the movie didn't win any other Oscars, but Mike Nichols won Best Director, which is fascinating. It was definitely gypped out of Best Original Song, I'd have to say. It didn't get nominated for Best I know. <laughs> I don't like know. Like on some technicality that wasn't even really... A technicality. I don't. Sometimes they just they snub the the popular movies. They always have for the popular songs. Yeah, the original best original song category. We got to overhaul that. Oh yeah, yeah. Because uh, do you do you know what won best original song in 1967? What beat the non-nominated Mrs. Robinson or any of the other songs that were original for that? No. 
That is Talk to the Animals from Dr. Doolittle. <laughs> Best Picture nominee, Dr. Doolittle. That's like the one out of the five that no one watches from that year. Yeah, no. Because it, otherwise, it's like a That's spectacular a- year. Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, Bonnie and Clyde, The Graduate. In the Heat of the Night. The Best Picture In the Heat of the Night. Which one? Yes. Yeah, no, those, those, are, those are great uh, movies of the ones I've seen. Uh, but Mike Nichols yes, is Mike really, I watched, I watched a bunch of his movies just for this. Like, I watched Closer, yeah. which in my opinion is a worse carnal knowledge. I still haven't seen it. I know, I, I know that it's, it's a big one. I'll get to it eventually. I'll get to it soon. I, I know that some people really love it. It got two uh, Oscar nominees, so sadly you won't be, co- uh, you know, but covering it. I'm sure one of those supporting actor or supporting actress has a lone nominee. I'm, now, give me a second to try and think. Not Collateral, not Million Dollar Baby, not The Aviator, not Sideways. Not yes, Kinsey, uh, Laura Kinsey is the supporting actress lone nominee that year. So that's how I get to talk about Closer on this podcast. Well, spoiler alert, it's a worse carnal knowledge, in my opinion. Because <laughs> it's all, it's basically the same thing, skipping around based on sex and these sex-addicted adults, but it's got four kind of main characters, Jude Law, Julia Roberts, Natalie Portman, Clive Owen, yeah. instead of the one, two, kind of. Jack Nicholson is arguably the focus even though it's I'd say almost a duo. He gets the lead sort of narrative in all three arcs. And like Garfunkel and Bergen are leads in the first act. And Margaret and Margaret is a lead in the second act, sort of. Right. Then they're basically not present in the rest of the movie. So they get pushed into supporting, which I, I that's, that's a fair placement i'd say i wouldn't say she frauded into supporting yeah there really isn't time for much more because it's a pretty short film 93 minutes oh yeah you're in and out but you're in and out and you are uh very affected by the end that should have been the tagline was in and out yeah (laughs) because sex yeah (laughs) that's basically what the title is carnal as the legal uh, description for sex before it was changed to like sexual penetration. In wow. Yeah, that's where the term comes from. The, I think there was a problem with how it showed sex because yeah. uh, there was a, a police raid on a theater in this Georgia theater. somewhere. Was it Athens, Georgia? Yes. Uh, the police seized a ro- uh, the film and held the theater manager uh, for distri- distribution of obscenity, essentially. And the Georgia Supreme Court upheld that, and they took it to the United States Supreme Court. The Supreme Court overturned it and said that it wasn't sufficiently obscene to be considered uh, illegal. And it's really not. <laughs> really, yeah. Like, like I said, I have a lot to say about sex in the movies in this year particularly, but this movie, like, could it, there could have been a lot more explicitness, I'll say that much. 
and it would have fit within what the movie is doing. And I think it's a very deliberate choice to hold back on what it could have shown. Another fun fact about this film, I think it was in the top 10 of the year, box office-wise. Yeah. Can you imagine a year like that nowadays? Like, that always blows my mind. Like, looking back and seeing that the top-grossing movie of 1979 was Kramer vs. Kramer, that was... <laughs> or do you know what was the number one box office hit in 1971? I believe it was Fiddler on the Roof. Fiddler on the Roof was the Which number. Yeah, a three. You watched hour, for this episode, I believe. A three-hour musical about Jews in Russia in 1904. Uh, it's about tradition, I believe. <laughs> I love the movie. <laughs> yeah, no, I I really liked it. Um, but th- that's the, the number one box office movie of the year. Take me back. Take me. That's what I always think when I look at the top tens. I'm like, uh, okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'll watch all of those right now. What else was in the top ten for 1971? Yeah. French Connection, I think, was up there. Yeah, it had to. Which is like a dirty police procedural. And yet. About racist cops almost completely sexless, which I think is really interesting when you talk about how much sex is in all the other movies in this uh, field. But it's, almost it's, not, it's not real heroinless because they used real heroin for yeah. the scenes, I believe. Yeah, I'm going to look up the top 10, the box office top 10. In I know one of them was Billy Jack, which is a film. Okay, so number one, Fiddler on the Roof. Number two, Billy Jack. Number three, The French Connection. Number four, Summer of 42. Number five, Diamonds Are Forever, the first franchise entry into the list, which, oh, oh, those were the days. Number six is Dirty Harry. Number seven, A Clockwork Orange. What the heck? (laughs) Number eight, Carnal Knowledge. Number nine, The Last Picture Show. And number 10, Willard. That's such a good list, I'd have to say. That's probably the best transition into sex of the movies, which is something I have a lot to say about this. So let's look at the movies in sort of Oscar contention in major ways in this year. All right. Clockwork Orange. Clockwork Orange. Very sexually frank. Charged, I'd say. More so than carnal knowledge. Yeah. Clockwork Orange is the most out of this bunch. That's sex by way of dystopia, by way of, like, psychological reformation, by, by way of, like, a lot of darkness. I'd agree with that. Yeah. I mean, that's just, that's just London, really. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, last Picture Show, which is sex by way of, like, the death of the American dream. and like, By middle America, I'd say. Yeah, growing up in middle America and, like, all that kind of stuff so that has a film by oh, the way yeah, absolutely that like that has a, it's sex by way of x the sunday bloody sunday which is sex by way of talking about like like a very frank depiction of uh, bisexuality and a frank like modern life and the modern woman and the modern gay man of a certain age um only gay director john schlesinger yeah um but that movie is sex by way of X. Uh, there's more in here that I... Uh, Clute? Clute, yes. 
Clute is sex by way of like sort of pulpy thriller, pulpy sort of like paranoia thriller, paranoia uh, serial killer thriller. Uh, MJ Pakula. Yes. Um, Love him. Uh, I'm not really fiddling on the roof. Um, no, fiddling on the roof is definitely deeply sexless. <laughs> Uh, the hospital has a whole, like, it's not the main conceit of the movie, but there's a whole bit with uh, uh, Diana Riggs' character is very frankly, like, ha- has some sort of, like, sexual feelings towards her father, which leads her towards attraction to older men. And, like, George C. Scott is impotent, and that's a whole thing. And, like, she sort of it's very weirdly framed, but she, like, helps him overcome his impotence by basically, like, egging him into assaulting her. Oh, classic Hollywood. I'd have to say. (laughs) It's a really weird movie. 1971. (laughs) Yeah. um, But then, so this movie, Carnal Knowledge, is just sex. There's no real other hook for it, which I think is probably a big reason why it doesn't do as well as a lot of these other movies. Right. These other movies are sex by way of another topic. Sex while X. And Carnal Knowledge, as the title suggests, is just sex. That's true. I think that's what a lot of people complained about. Pauline Kael, I think. Yes, that it was too crass and there wasn't anything else to sort of back it up. Uh, to sort of flesh out what the movie is saying. It's just about sex and gross men. Freaking men. <laughs> and then the other movie that doesn't have an Oscar footprint, but that is also sex by way of blank about a young man sort of coming into his own in relation to sex, Harold and Maude. <gasps> That's true. <laughs> the best sex by way of blank movie of this year by far it's i love that that's my number one of 1971 it's in my top 10 of all time it's it's one, one of my favorite years for film yeah it's a, and that's it's my a, number one i've got a whole list yeah people don't really talk about this year in terms of being one of the great film years definitely one of definitely my favorite hands down yeah, even of the 70s no one like it gets sort of overshadowed by 74 75 76 yeah Seventy nine, uh, too, maybe. Seventy nine is is a big one uh, that people cite a lot, but no one ever really brings up nineteen seventy one as a great year for film. Harold and Maude is definitely just one of the. Wish it did get nominated for something. Maybe Colin Higgins' screenplay. Yeah, that that, makes... that original screenplay would have been a great. I mean, obviously Ruth Gordon, obviously. Obviously, Oscar winner from Rosemary's Baby. Yes, Oscar winner and Oscar nominated for acting and writing. For Adam's Rib, was it? Yes. Yes. Like, they definitely liked her at the time. Also, nomination. also killer on an episode of Columbo, I believe. I mean, everyone <laughs> in this time was a killer on an episode of Columbo. That's what was so great about the 70s. Everyone was on Columbo. Because you'd go to the movies and be like, I saw him in Columbo once. He was on Columbo, yeah. I'm sure probably every movie that we've mentioned from this year, someone in it was on Columbo once. Maybe. If not that, then six degrees of separation with Columbo. Definitely. Everyone, like one degree. <laughs> it's, it's gotta be. 
another film about sex from 71, I, I want to say McCabe and Mrs. Miller. Oh, yes, exactly. Literally a sex by way of Western cowboys. Yes, by way of like the modern Western, too. I believe that's like, that's sort of a Western at the end of the timeline of when Westerns are set. Like, it's, an, it's bordering on anti-Western. Yeah. Because it doesn't really fall into any of those pits. It kind of, I mean, even the, I'm sure you're going to talk about it later, Mrs. Cave and Mrs. Miller. I'll just leave it at Warren Beatty is building a brothel in the Pacific Northwest. And Julie Christie is the map. She's so great in that. It's great. Lone acting nomination. I I can't wait to get to talk about that movie. That's my second favorite of 71. Carnal Knowledge being my third, top three. That's a, that's a solid top three. That is. Oh, Death in Venice is another seventy-one film about sex. It's. I'm telling you, <laughs> every movie has some very sexual charge to it. Why it's so fascinating? We should. This is our transition into talking about the Oscars. The history-making nominees are Ellen Burstyn in the Last Picture Show. Barbara Harris in Who Is Harry Kellerman and Why Is He Saying Those Terrible Things About Me. Cloris Leachman in The Last Picture Show. Margaret Layton in The Go-Between. And Anne Margaret in Carnal Knowledge. So now we're talking about the Oscars. <laughs> it's so fascinating that in all of these movies that have a lot to say about sex and relationships and like growing up, a lot of these are coming of age movies. Like right. Carnal Knowledge is about coming of age. Last Picture Show, coming of age. Harold and Maude, coming of age. Uh, Sunday Bloody Sunday, not so much, but that's still like, like Glenda Jackson and Murray Head are young, um, even if like the main sort of sexual draw to that movie is Peter Finch, um, and as far as what that movie is saying about sex, but then a movie about a couple of forty-year-old grizzled cops uh, that I don't think has maybe more than one woman with a speaking role, one or two. I just watched it a couple weeks ago again, and I couldn't tell you a single female character outside of the wife of the guy that owns the restaurant that they think might be the yeah. guy that's the connection to the drug dealers. The and only thing I can remember is Gene Hackman definitely has sex with someone, and then he's handcuffed to his bed, I believe. By the ankle, I think. Is, is ankle, maybe? I don't know. But yes, he's handcuffed to the bed. But like, he follows her on her bike. And then the next morning, Scheider shows up at his apartment. And I don't even think, we see her at the very end of the scene, walking in from the other room, but she doesn't say anything. There's also a woman in a, with a baby uh, carriage that Gene Hackman dodges yes, <laughs> with his speeding car. <laughs> probably the, the top billed woman in that movie. <laughs> carriage. Uh, lady with baby carriage. That, it's it's just really interesting that like, and it's not that they were still so completely sex averse. Like Midnight Cowboy had won Best Picture two years prior, and that's a very sexually frank movie. It's so awesome in that way. Yeah, um, but then in a year with even more like sexually charged movies and movies that are saying a lot about uh, sex and relationships drinking game take a shot every time i say sex in this episode uh, 
that they go for a movie like French Connection. But it's reflected in uh, the acting races. That's right. a dichotomy. That Hackman wins for a very sexless leading man role. And Ben Johnson wins supporting actor uh, in essentially, like, w- w- he talks about his past relationship with Ellen Burstyn, but that's really the extent of his sexual uh, presence in that movie as far as having one. And then Jane Fonda plays a prostitute in Clute, and Cloris Leachman plays an adulterous wife having an affair with a high school. Yeah. It's not Jeff Bridges, it's the other one. Timothy Bottoms. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I just think that's interesting. It's really, in, like, so I haven't watched the other two lone nominees in this supporting actress field. Let's talk about supporting actress. Where Let's talk. got the nomination. Um, so I haven't seen uh, The Go-Between, nominated mm-hmm. for Margaret Lighton, or Who is Harry Kellerman and Why Is He Saying Those Terrible Things About Me, nominated for Barbara Harris. Uh, but the other three, uh, Cloris Leachman wins for The Last Picture Show, and Margaret um, and Ellen Burstyn's also nominated for the last that film. Those three performances are all fantastic. I yeah. I would genuinely, if I had a ballot in 1971, I would have had a hard time picking. I would Same. have a really tough time because for every great, they all three of them are great throughout, but they have one very big, very specifically like draws you in scene that like could easily sway your vote. Right. And they're all the last thing you see of their character, basically. So that's your parting message left with these uh, characters is this very big emotional scene uh, for each of them that I think uh, is, is, is just really great. Yeah. I wonder if Cloris Leachman won because she's like, her scene's at the end. Well, you know, yeah, hers is at they the embraced end. at the end. Yes, at the very So you leave that movie thinking Cloris Leachman. But also Ellen Burstyn's last scene isn't that much longer before that. It's like a scene or two beforehand where she's in the car with Timothy Bottoms and she's talking about how it was her and her who was the one that Sam the Lion had been had told him about. Um and she like is reflecting on that scene. And there's a great little moment uh where he's Timothy Bottoms says something to the effect of like yeah, he really liked you. And she goes, loved me. And it, it's, it breaks your heart. It's great. She's great. Yeah, no, all, all three of them are great. And all three of them, again, very sexually uh, charged characters. Like the, right. all three of their plot lines hinge around their relationship to sex and to intimacy and to the various affairs they're having. Yeah, no, it, it's... It's a great lineup of those three. And uh, whenever I do the episodes on the other two, I'll check back and see mm-hmm. uh, if they hold up to the likes of those three. I hope they're good. Yeah, I do too. And Margaret, she won the Golden Globe. So how close do you think she was to winning? I think it was really close between the, t- the three of them, I would bet. Um, yeah, so let's talk about the Golden Globes. So And Margaret won. And Margaret won. The supporting actress Golden Globe. And Burstyn and Leachman are nominated there as well. The other two nominees are Diana Rigg in The Hospital, uh, another very sexually frank performance about, like, her existence in that movie is more or less to sort of seduce 
almost, uh, George C. Scott, and reinvigorate his passion for life and for uh, passion in general. Um, it's, it's, it's a good performance. I was taken aback by some of the content of it. Like, the, like I said, the monologue where she's talking about her... Uh, father? Yeah, her relationship to her father and how that's why she seeks out middle-aged men because she had those sort of incestuous uh, subconscious feelings towards him. It's weird. I, I can't state this enough. Whatever you think the hospital is, it's weirder. I gotta watch it. Was it written by Patty Chayefsky? Patty Chayefsky won. Of the network? Yeah, he won his second of three screenplay Oscars. For and the he's Oscars. the only guy who's won three solo screenplay Oscars. Yes. Best original. No, Marty is adapted. Oh, well, then it's just screenplay. <laughs> yes, Marty's adapted from a teleplay, I believe. Um, but also at the Golden Globes. And Margaret is not a lone acting nominee uh, because Garfunkel and Nicholson both got nominations as well. Garfunkel for supporting actor. Uh, the only Oscar carryover is Ben Johnson, who also wins the Globe. Other nominees, though, are Tom Baker in Nicholas and Alexandra as uh, Rasputin, which is cool. I watched that in middle school. Mm-hmm. And I really it was nominated Best Picture. Yes, it's a best pic- It's a very sexless best picture nominee, even with uh, Rasputin as a main character. <laughs> very sexless, from what I remember, uh, and very long. Paul Mann in Fiddler on the Roof, who uh, uh-huh. is not the Oscar nominee for it. Leonard Fry gets the Oscar nomination for supporting, but Paul Mann, who plays uh, the butcher, yes, the butcher who is intended to marry. Tevya's oldest daughter. Seidel. Yes. And then uh, Jan Michael Vincent in Going Home, which I have nothing to say about that because I haven't seen the movie and don't know anything about the actor. Uh, So I will leave that at that. Good for you, Jan Michael Vincent. Sorry you didn't get the other. so weird that they didn't carry any over except Ben Johnson. Yeah. Winner. Those are always fascinating to look at. uh, When the Globes go completely off script, from or when the Oscar like I mean it really shows that Ben Johnson was always going to win that and rightfully so it's a great win I know the Oscars they put they nominated Roy Scheider yes Roy Scheider connection. Connection. which is a good pick I gotta say he doesn't really have a lot to do I feel in that movie you're right but I just like the actor <laughs> yeah, I, I'm glad that Roy Scheider has two Oscar nominations but I wouldn't have given French Connection I would have get, I mean he deserved it for Jaws yeah. But yeah, and uh, the other Oscar nominees and supporting actor uh, that Garfunkel missed out to Jeff Bridges for The Last Picture Show, which is also a great performance uh, in that movie, which is full of great performances. But he, he really stands out to the point that you can see in that performance stuff that you would see in his career over the next several decades. Uh, he, he really does stand out as great among that cast uh like i said leonard fry for fiddler on the roof the guy who does end up marrying seidel's daughter yes the uh, mm, uh what's his name taylor uh i don't remember the character's name it's like motel yeah motel camzoil i love that movie <laughs> and then the other oscar nominee is richard jekyll for sometimes a great notion again movie i don't know much about actor i don't know much about Good for you. I'm glad you got the nomination. <laughs> Maybe Art Garfunkel could have popped in there. He, he, 
I, he should have. He should have. He should have been nominated uh, for best original song. <laughs> I actually, I don't think necessarily he was uh, involved with the songwriting on the graph. Like, am I wrong? I Simon uh, definitely usually wrote the songs. I think though, when you look at, let me pull it up. But when you look at who were the uh, music credits on the graduate, I don't think Art Garfunkel is listed. Oh. Yeah, uh, music by Paul Simon wrote the songs, and Dave Grusin wrote the score. Doesn't say anything about Art Garfunkel. Oscar, I we're always trying to snub our guy Art. Yeah, uh, <laughs> apparently so. Yeah, no, Garfunkel, I, I, he was probably sixth or seventh in this lineup. Maybe Tom Baker came closer just because that movie did so well. Nicholas and For I some got, reason. Yeah, we got several. Here, I'm going to check. How many nominations did Nicholas and Alexandra get? Who directed that? Nominations. It, uh, someone. You didn't, <laughs> didn't get the director nomination. Uh, Franklin J. Schaffner. Oh, from Patton. Yes, uh, just the year after Patton. He was, must have been riding that wave or something. Yeah, I'm sure it was, although he missed out on the director nomination for it in right. of... Um, Schlesinger, I think, picked it up. Sunday, yeah. Uh, which that also... Who he won Best Director the year before. Schnaff, yeah. Schnaff. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I never put that together. But weird. But then also at the Golden Globes, Jack Nicholson gets a nomination for Lead Actor in a Drama. Uh, up against Oscar carryovers, Gene Hackman for The French Connection, who wins here as well, Peter Finch for Sunday Bloody Sunday, and George C. Scott in The Hospital. The other nominee is Malcolm McDowell in A Clockwork Orange. Oh, that's a good... It's a really good... A good prop. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a solid set of five. There's not a lot of wiggle room in there uh, mm-hmm. to sort of pull that away. Uh, but then... In place of Nicholson and McDowell at the Oscars. Topol. Topol for Fiddler on the Roof, who wins the comedy musical Globe. And Walter Matthau in Koch. Don't get me started on Koch. I've not seen Koch. No one has. <laughs> what is Koch? Jack Lemon directs his good friend Walter Matthau. I forgot that Lemon directed that. He, you're absolutely right. He so did. I don't get to talk about that on the podcast, right? That got another nomination somewhere. I don't know. I got four nominations. What? Koch Koch got nominations. Okay. Best actor for Walter Matthau. Best film editing. Uh. (laughs) Best song for Life is What You Make It by Marvin Hamlish and Johnny Mercer. And best sound. Apparently, Koch sounds good. If you're ever watching Koch, keep an ear open for a... <laughs> I'm starting my new uh, spin-off podcast, Koch Watch. <laughs> <laughs> Where we watch Koch every week. Minute-by-minute minute, Koch Watch. <laughs> oh, gosh. Walter, I can't wait to grow up and become Walter Matha. Yeah, I mean, if you're going to grow up to be an old man of Hollywood, I wonder if he was nominated. He had a good year that year because he had a new leaf, Plaza Suite, and then Koch. Yeah. I mean, you can't really top Koch. I'm sure you can't. I, I'm sure I'm really missing out uh, on the cinematic masterpiece that is Jack Lemmon's Koch. 
<laughs> I don't want to say Jack Lemon's Koch out loud. That sounds like I'm saying something dirty. Talk about Jack Lemon's Koch. Koch, Koch, Koch. <laughs> it's not even about the mayor guy from New York. It's about an unrelated Koch. <laughs> I don't know what it's about. I don't. I I know nothing about Koch. Well, it's only about Walter Matthau being old and holding a baby, like it says in the poster. Yeah, I think the poster is about the extent of my knowledge of Koch. And then the sound, of course. Yes, and that, that <laughs> wonderful, wonderful Koch sound. <laughs> For years, you've been trying to replicate the Koch TM sound. <sighs> okay. Back to the other awards, uh, though, that uh, Carnal Knowledge was up for. At the New York Film Critics Circle, Anne Margaret and Cloris Leachman were runner-up in Supporting Actress to Ellen Burstyn. Wow. It, it really shows you this was like a, it was probably a very tight race between all three of them. Like, I'd, I'd be very curious to look at the numbers on that, see how close either one of the other two of them were to winning you're right. Um, See whether Barbara Harris was in fourth or fifth place. I, yes. <laughs> uh, I mean, you never know. You never know. But then uh, we didn't really talk about the screenplay when we were talking about the rest of the movie. We mentioned it in passing. But so it gets a WGA nomination for best original uh, comedy screenplay. Back when the WGA used to separate comedy and drama as well as original and adapted. So you would get four uh, screenplay winners and it loses again to the hospital which goes on to win the original screenplay oscar interesting that uh at wga it rules carnal knowledge and the hospital both to be comedies and then they both get drama nominations at the globes that is pretty funny yeah carnal Uh, knowledge it's it's funny but it's definitely not a comedy i'd have to say but then the other nominees at wga for original comedy are bananas made for each other and taking off which sure i don't know anything about those movies i've got some pretty great takes on bananas woody allen's bananas Uh, but like come on yeah you have a specific lot category for original comedy screenplay you're not beholden to like five originals or five comedies harold and maude again so true where was harold and maude where were they? Where were they? Who didn't invite them? And or Maude. Um, but then, so at the Oscars, the original screenplay lineup, The Hospital Wins for Patty Shayevsky, like we mentioned. Uh, other nominees are Investigation of a Citizen Above Suspicion, which is, I believe, a nominee or winner for foreign language film the year before, if I'm yeah. not mistaken. Yes, it won foreign language film the year before. Uh, cool. The other nominees, though, Clute uh, win, or is nominated, Summer of 42, and Sunday Bloody Sunday, which I've seen now three of those. I've seen The Hospital, Clute, and Sunday Bloody Sunday, and those are all solid screenplays. Those are all actually really well-written movies. I, I wouldn't take any of those out, and I haven't seen the other two, so I can't speak to that, but you could have found room for carnal knowledge in there, especially from, like, I mean, Mike Nichols didn't write any of the movies up until that point. I actually, I don't know if he wrote uh, the adaptation for Catch-22, but he's not a credited screenwriter on Virginia Woolf or The Graduate or this. But like, 
his other two movies were screenplay nominees, uh, in Adapted at least. But yeah, you could definitely see it would not take much uh, tweaking of the timeline for this movie to be a screenplay nominee, supporting actor nominee. Like it probably came very close in a lot of categories, I would say. I agree. Clute, didn't they like change a bunch of the screenplay? I feel like I remember them. I don't know much about the Clute screenplay. I think they definitely changed some of Clute's and Jane Fonda's relationship. That's like while filming. That sounds plausible. I think I not like that. Not like that makes it a bad screenplay. I'm just saying. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe that'd make room for carnal knowledge. (laughs) I mean, I I wouldn't take Clute out. Um, no, Clute's really good. I actually really enjoy Clute. Yeah, I think it's a it's a well written thriller, and it, it's a very deserving best actress win. Even if my personal favorite of the year would have been Ruth Gordon, I think like yeah. I wouldn't take away the Jane Fonda win. Too bad she wasn't nominated, yeah. Gordon. You yeah. can't vote her. <laughs> yeah, I I I mean I breaking the rules over here. I would have voted Julie Christie, by the way. <laughs> Another solid, solid choice. I can't fault you for that. And Glenda Jackson is also really great in Sunday Bloody Sunday. Who are the other two nominees? Uh, it is Janet Suzman in Nicholas and Alexandra. Oh. Uh, the titular Alexandra. <laughs> and uh, Vanessa Redgrave in Mary Queen of Scots as the titular Mary Queen of Scots. Vanessa Redgrave is always sneaking into Oscar years. Yeah. I have to say. She'll always be one of those, like, I, okay, I got the other four. Who's the fifth nominee? Oh, right, Vanessa Redgrave. Oh, of course. Vanessa Redgrave. Yes. Uh, what other notes do I have written down here? I, we've really skipped over Rita Marino's part in this oh, film. Yes. We completely <laughs> forgot to talk about her. She's, she's great in her. Do you want to uh, sort of describe what that scene is, what happens in it? Sure. Jack Nichols, the parade of the ball buster scene has just happened. Which, by the way, and, that's where Carol Kane shows up. She's uh, Garfunkel's like, 18-year-old new girlfriend who's yeah. next to him on the couch, horrified at this PowerPoint. <laughs> she Carol Kane. She doesn't say anything in this movie. Uh, but she's just like staring wide-eyed as Nicholson just like degrades these women and girls and she, like this is the first time she's ever met jack nicholson's character and he's <laughs> showing this homemade slideshow of all the women he hates basically but yes so and his daughter is also on the slideshow by the way yes which is weird there, we didn't mention in the slideshow when he's going through um a picture of candace bergen's mm-hmm. character shows up for a second and he skips past it and is like I don't know how that got in there. That was a mistake. And it cuts to Art Garfunkel and you get a look of like, oh, is this the first time he's had any hint of that? It's Definitely like, is. <laughs> he's just that oblivious to the whole thing. But yes, so after this scene. After this scene, Jack Nicholson goes to Louise, Rita Marino's character's house. And she is a prostitute. And Jack Nicholson has this convoluted script that they go through you don't know it's just a regular conversation between the two of them and she's like asking him about things or whatever and she says something and he like stands up and like, no you said the wrong thing you said the wrong you thing. never said that before yeah what do i say 
you say 100. But then, like, the scene keeps playing out, and it's, it's a really, like, almost horrifying look into this man's life. That, like, he's paying $100 for this, like, new age, artsy, hippie prostitute to, like, go down on him and tell him that he's better than every woman ever. And that Literally they stroke his ego. Yes. And it is, it is brutal to, like, that that's where he's at in his life. That, like, all these women are ball busters to him. And so the only way that he can seek out pleasure is to pay this woman to tell him that he's better than them all. He's basically found a way to have sex with himself. Yeah, you know, he's exactly. written what she says. You know, he, at this point, he's he cannot get hard anymore. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's not explicit, but it's it's basically between the lines of yeah, this like this is how far he's fallen in his uh, in his ways. Right, it's a great scene. Rita Marino has like ten minutes, it's, and uh, it's I'd say it's probably closer to like six. Yeah, it's not very long. Barely in it. But there's this grate where she keeps coming down. It's almost like that Spike Lee sidewalk thing. Yeah. The background behind her keeps rising and just it never stops, even though you'd know she'd be at the floor by then. Yeah. It, it's a great capper on what, to say what the movie's trying to say all in one scene. Like you could have had, that scene could stand alone as like a little short film uh without any of the rest of the movie and you would know everything about this man from it. It like really sells his whole personality. The film is such a beautiful series of vignettes. It's so much a play. Yeah. But just, you can tell it was written as a play, but not in the way of like, it's very stagey. Like it has a lot of single location scenes. It's just structured. Yeah. It's, it, there's yeah. to it these these characters like i mentioned with the whole bullshit artist thing where like these characters feel very lived in and very like confident in their uh interplay between each other it feels very realistic even if sometimes the dialogue is very snappy and very like theatrical it plays as like oh it's because these two guys are theatrical in their ways, in their sort of seductions. That's just who they are. It's such a good movie. Watch it, even though we've spoiled the complete thing. Yeah, no, it's definitely <laughs> worth a watch. It is, uh, it's a, of the four movies I've covered so far, uh, or at least that I've recorded so far, this will be out third, but of the four that I've recorded, it's easily the best movie. I'm glad that you've said this. Yes. No, Probably no. one of my favorite movies, I think. Oh, yeah. Like, Third time I've watched it this year, which yeah. is insane. I hope I don't get put on any lists or anything. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm looking through my notes. Uh, There's another interesting fact. The next time Anne Margaret's nominated. Yes. In Tommy. Say, let's talk about Tommy. Let's talk about Tommy for a minute. Because I don't get to talk about Tommy on this podcast, which is bizarre to me that Tommy has not just an acting nomination, but an acting nomination and more. The Who's Tommy. Yes, The Who's Tommy. Uh, an entirely sung through performance outside of one word of spoken dialogue from her, where I think she says, Tommy. Every, every other bit of dialogue she has in that movie is completely sung. 
Um, but yes, the next time, what were you going to say about her performance? He was nominated alongside Carnal Knowledge co-star Carol Kane. Yes. For Hester Street. Jack Nicholson won Best Actor that year. What a year for Carnal Knowledge. What a year, uh, Carnal Knowledge for Union at the Oscars. Uh, Moreno wouldn't have been in anything. I don't think Garfunkel would have. Candice Bergen might have shown up in something, but she didn't get a nomination. Yeah. Marina is such a queen. I just wanted to say I love her. Yeah. Yeah. She was, it was nice to see her pop up at the very end of, in this. I, she, she does a good job with that one scene. Um, but yeah, the vulgar auteurist in me wants to say that Anne-Margaret's performance in Tommy is amazing. <laughs> it's like, I know some people rag on that nomination because she sings and she rolls around in a big old room of bubbles and beans and chocolate sauce uh, as like a visual signifier of her mental breakdown. Um, <laughs> Margaret is fucking fantastic in Tommy. <laughs> the take is that Tommy's great. <laughs> yes. I've not seen it, by the way. I didn't watch it for this. You, you watch Tommy. I want to. Watch My it. friend said it was horrifying, so I was put off by it. Find it and watch it. It's like, oh, I, I don't even know what else there is to compare it to. Like, it, Pink Floyd the Wall, but with more plot, I guess. I hear people relating it to the animal's head and uh, then Milos Forman's hair. Uh, it's the monkeys, not the animals. You know? Oh, you're right. The monkeys. But, like, head is very very numb like there's no plot to it it's just a bunch of vignettes of the it's a bunch of bits from scene to scene tommy has a plot i mean it's the plot of pinball wizard it's this little kid uh is deaf dumb and blind and he sure plays a mean pinball and then he starts a cult <laughs> um but yeah, it sounds like mom, she shacks up with oliver reed uh go go watch uh Go watch Tommy. If there's anything we want to get across in this podcast, first thing is carnal knowledge. Dot, dot, dot is great. Go watch Tommy. Yeah, go watch Ken Russell's The Who's Tommy. Has Ken, what else did Ken Russell do? He sounds familiar. The Devils, which is another 1971 movie about sex. With Andrew Reed and Vanessa Redgrave. Full circle. We did it, guys. The Devils. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, Space Jam, A New Legacies, The Devils. Oh, yes. The nuns do show up. <laughs> the nuns, and so do the... The Devils show up in Space Jam, A New Legacy. So do Alex DeLarge's droogs. Yeah. What a world we live in. Hey, why didn't they uh, find room for the Carnal Knowledge cast to show up? Why didn't they find room for <laughs> Jack Nicholson to come on? And Lola Bunny has just been introduced, and Jack Nicholson says... I wouldn't, I wouldn't kick her out of bed. And then everyone claps. <laughs> and then everyone clapped. Um, yeah. Good movie. Good performance from Anne Margaret. Good performance from uh, the non-nominated Nicholson and Garfunkel and Candace Bergen. Candace Bergen would have been a really good supporting actress nomination. Too bad she didn't get like any traction whatsoever. I'm, I'm actually just going to look at, I don't have like a formal list written up of who my nominees would be, but I'm just going to look at my what letterboxed uh, movies from 1971 I have to see if there's anyone else 
that comes up, even if they were nowhere near the actual conversation. Eileen Brennan is really good in The Last Picture Show as well. Sybil Shepherd is really good in yeah. The Last Picture Show. That's borderline lead or supporting, but like you easily could have had this category be three ladies from Last Picture Show, two from Carnal Knowledge, and I wouldn't have complained. It'd be like when all the girls from Nashville were nominated at the Globes. Yeah, it's four, like four from Nashville, Lee Grant, uh, who ends up winning. One. <laughs> yeah, she, didn't, she won the Oscar, but not the Golden Globe, but the Golden oh. Globe went to Brenda Vaccaro for Jacqueline Susan's One Is Not A... Some, what's the full title on that? It's another movie I get to talk about on this. Uh, yeah, Jacqueline Susan's Once Is Not Enough. Brenda Vaccaro, Golden Globe winner, Oscar nominee. Wow. Uh, yes. Lee Grant, renowned actress, probably best known from uh, Columbo. Yes, and for <laughs> uh, fighting on both sides of the American Civil War. What? <laughs> Robert E. Lee and Ulysses Grant. Wow. Lee Grant. It, it's a dumb wow. It's a dumb joke. That was really good. Thank You're going to have to insert some laughter. <laughs> so people know. <laughs> Honestly, I'll probably cut it out from the episode. Nah, that one's staying in. <laughs> people have sp- the the person has spoken. Um, yeah. Uh, so I I think that pretty much wraps up our conversation about uh, the rest of the movie. Uh, That's right. Uh, move into our final thoughts. Uh, what other nominations, if any, would you have given Carnal Knowledge? Oh, let's see. I feel like I'd give it. Art Garfunkel. Yeah, I mean, yeah, absolutely. It would have been a great nomination. Because I don't think there's room for Nicholson in the... uh... Depending on how good uh, Walter Matthau is in Koch. Oh, you know what? Actually. (laughs) Yeah. Definitely Uh, is room for Nicholson. (laughs) Yes. Uh, We can kick out the Koch. All right, we're changing history right now. Everyone go on to Wikipedia and edit Koch out. <laughs> no more Koch. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously, like you said, it's one of your top three of the year, so picture would yeah. be... Like, we're not even talking about, like, just, like, in your fantasy world, where you get to pick all the nominations. Oh. Like, doesn't have to fit in with the narratives. What do you, personally, give it a nomination for? Okay, well then... It definitely gets a nomination for Best Picture. And then I don't think I'd, even in my fantasy, I wouldn't give Nichols a Best Director nomination just because he already won. Yeah, it's not the most flashy direction, even if there are some really interesting stuff, like I said, with the, with the way it shows or doesn't show things and some really interesting. And I really do love Nichols' direction. I watch so many of his films. Yeah. I watch like every, I watch every movie he did with Nicholson. Yeah. Besides the fortune. And a little tip. Wolf? The movie where Jack Nicholson becomes a werewolf? <laughs> and I so want to. I don't... Like, I, I know it has not any sort of positive reputation. Nope. I Except the one I'm about to give it. <laughs> Good. Let's hear it. Let's hear... Okay, so this, this show, as we have established, pro-Tommy, anti-Koch, pro-Wolf. You're probably wondering, why did Mike Nichols direct a movie about Jack Nicholson becoming a werewolf? And I'll tell you, Nicholson got to choose the director. Oh, yeah. I did. I had heard that little anecdote. Isn't that crazy? 
yeah, that of all the directors he'd worked with, uh, the one he wants for his werewolf uh, midlife crisis movie is Mike Nichols. And this is kind of a spoiler, but it's not really. Go ahead. James Spader played, who cares about spoilers for Wolf? (laughs) I sure don't. Go for it. James Spader plays Jack Nicholson's rival, who also becomes a werewolf. Oh, boy. Have you ever heard of better casting than James Spader? <laughs> as a werewolf? As werewolf foil to Jack Nicholson. I, I have not. That's... And they both work at a publishing company? <laughs> <laughs> oh, and I Jack forgot. Nicholson pees on his shoes at one point? I forgot. It says, just mark in my territory. <laughs> I forgot Wolf was a contemporary setting for a moment. <laughs> so hearing publishing firm completely took me out of what I was thinking Wolf was. I... <laughs> I had completely forgotten that that's... Oh, God. Oh, that makes it so much better. (laughs) (laughs) Don't get me started on Wolf, because I won't stop. Oh, boy. Uh, Michelle Pfeiffer's in it. She sure is, yeah. She's the love interest to Jack Nicholson. They'd worked together before, right? Nicholson and Pfeiffer. Is she in Witches of Eastwick? Oh, wait, is she? She I don't know. Cher is. Yeah, I know that much. Um... Share. Probably. probably. Share from Silkwood, another Mike Nichols film. Another Mike Nichols. Diana Dolly. She was nominated for that one. She was. Yeah. Um, yeah. Any other uh, nominations? I, I mean, I agree. Picture, actor, supporting actor, supporting actress for both of them. I give it screenplay. Yeah, I, I, it'd be a screenplay nominee for sure. I'd, I'd give it an editing nomination. You know, it does have that. De- oh, it's so, so so well edited. I just remember. <laughs> it's a really smartly edited movie. There's a sequence that I, I noted. Uh, it starts out uh, with Candace Bergen and Art Garfunkel dancing at like a, at like a bar. Um, yeah. And as the scene goes on, like they'll pass behind someone in the foreground and then it'll cut to her dancing with Nicholson at the same bar from the same angle. It's, it's really well cut together between the two of them to the point that like you might not even catch it the first couple times because it, it's so seamless. That's such a good movie. I love, there's this one scene where Nicholson's like, I say these things to girls, you know, it's like we're speaking in code and I say, you want me to help with your homework? That means something else. She says, no, I can't. That means something else. And then she said, <laughs> yeah. he said, you know, you're really smart. And then, Candice Bergen says, and that means something else. Yeah, it goes on for a few more times like that, too, where everything he says, she's like, and that means something else? Because it's so true of Jack Nicholson. Oh, yeah, he's, again, I cannot repeat, I cannot uh, make this more clear, a piece of shit in this movie. (laughs) Awful. But who could do it better? Yeah, no, like, yeah, sure, he doesn't ask for 18, 19, whatever. Yeah. But, like, no one, especially in that era, really could have pulled off what he pulls off. Mike Nichols... And with the assholiness. Mike Nichols actually told writer Jules Pfeiffer that Nicholson will be our most important actor since Branda. I mean... Do you agree? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like. Okay, I definitely do it, too. Yeah, like, I mean, there are arguments to be made for Pacino, De Niro, Hoffman, Hackman, people like that in the 70s, but... I don't think anyone really embodies the, the 70s acting, at least on the male side of things, as much as Jack Nicholson. And Nicholson had such a run. Oh, yeah. Like, 
This is like in the middle. Yes, 71 and 72, he doesn't get any nominations. But 69, he gets a nomination for Easy Rider. Easy Rider, which I love. Five Easy Pieces. Which I love, by the way. Misses out for uh, these two years for this. I don't know if he has anything in 1970. He has the King of Marvin Gardens. He sure does. Which, I does that get a nomination somewhere? It might get like some... I'm not gonna say a throwaway nomination, but a throwaway nomination. Yeah, um, but he obviously doesn't get nominated for that. Seventy-three is the last detail, which I have. a movie which I love, by the way. Yeah, uh, <laughs> seventy-four Chinatown. A movie which I love, by the way. Yeah, which he was prob- he he was second place that year, right? Thanks, so? yeah. Yeah, I agree. Like, I don't think it was Pacino. I mean, I know. Godfather Part Two, one picture, and like everything else, I don't. I think Nicholson was second, and I think because he does win the next year against Pacino, and he wins the Golden Globe for Chinatown. Oh, Um, although the Globes love Chinatown a lot more than the Oscars did. It only wins screenplay at the Oscars. It nearly goes home empty-handed. But it doesn't. It doesn't. It goes one for ten, which is (sighs) wild. Mm. Uh, but yeah uh, and then he wins the next year for One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest which is my favorite Best Actor winner really? yeah Wow. one of my favorite performances of all time it's really good it's fantastic like that was one of the first performances I watched when I was first really getting into film where I was like oh that's like the pinnacle of acting right there that's the best you can do on screen is that. And I, it, it was a really formative uh, lesson in acting for me, I think. That year, he also did Antonioni's The, pa- the Passenger. Yes, I got to see that uh, on the big screen uh, a few wow. years ago at uh, my campus cinema where I do some volunteering as an usher. They did wow. it as part of a Antonioni retrospective. Uh, I watched like the first half and I never finished. Oops. <laughs> it's a slow movie, but he's really good in it. I mean, it's got one of the most effective uh, ending shots. It's it's a tracking shot. It takes a while. It's like a few minutes long. Um, and I don't want to spoil it, but it's it's a really, really well done ending, uh, as Antonioni was known to do with his movie. Antonioni, good guy. Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't know. He's a good director. <laughs> director. Uh, we'll, we'll say that much. Don't want to speak too much to, uh, to his uh, personal life if we don't know that much about it. But yeah, uh, any other closing thoughts? I know we kind of said we were doing closing thoughts on the movie and then talked about a whole bunch more. Yeah. yeah. Just one more thing. Yes. Uh, just one more thing. Columbo reference. <laughs> we're tying it all back. Uh my favorite Mike Nichols film is The Birdcage. I think that's his best. The Birdcage, a movie that deserved so much better than it got at the Oscars. It got You're so right. one nomination, I think for like... Was it Makeup? Or, or something? It was like... Here, I'll, I'll pull that up now. I've, I'm not going to say I watched The Birdcage ten times this year, but I've watched The Birdcage ten times this year. <laughs> And nominated for one Oscar, which was for art direction. Oh, what a sham. What a sham. Yeah, like, it, it, it won SAG Ensemble. 
SAG nominated for uh, Nathan Lane and Hank Azaria. Deserve it. Golden Globe nomination at least for, uh, uh, yeah, nominated for Best Picture uh, Comedy and Best Actor Comedy for Nathan Lane. It should have been. Should have been everywhere. Williams, Lane, Azaria, Hackman, Diane Weist. Adapted screenplay for Elaine May. I know. Film design. It's. I'd even say director for Nichols. And plus 96. It was a good year. But then you get stuff like Shine and The English Patient. Oh, you sure do. You sure do. I love The Birdcage so much. And plus it's the first time Nichols and Elaine May worked together since a while. Yeah. It's baffling that it couldn't scrounge together any one other of the nominations like it's crazy because it like grossed like 200 million dollars yes yeah no small task not in the slightest yeah so that's our episode on carnal knowledge uh, harrison do you have anything to plug any social media anything you want to where the people can find you uh i have a letterbox sure plug your and letter. that's it i think it's just my name harrison dunn okay follow the podcast on Twitter and Letterboxd at Lone Acting Noms, all one word, and at, on Instagram at The Lone Acting Nominees. Uh, stay tuned for our next episode every Thursday uh, on all the places that you can find podcasts. And thank you for listening. Yeah, we're uh, almost exactly at two hours now. I'll get it down to a cool one thirty, one forty, somewhere around there. Nice. Uh, Don't cut the cotch stuff out. Oh no, I'm I'm <laughs> I'm keeping the cotch in, baby. The cotch stays. Put me in, cotch. Put me in. So angry. There's no Koch episode. I know. Four Besides this one, <laughs> I'm nominee Koch. Four the Koch special. Koch. Oh God. Oscar goes to sex by way of Koch. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta love Koch. Oh boy, Koch and Shaft in the same year. Can you believe it? When are we getting that again? I need the Koch Shaft cr- crossover. <laughs> Not me. <laughs>